Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Also, all advertisements and podcast sponsors are strictly for informational purposes only and not endorsements of any products or services. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast, and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. Hey guys, I wanted to tell you how easy it is to open and fund an Alto Crypto IRA. All you have to do is open a traditional Roth or SEP Crypto IRA account, then get ready to invest. An Alto Crypto IRA is specifically designed for crypto investments. You custody with Coinbase, trading's tax-free, investment minimums are as low as $10, and gains grow tax-deferred, meaning you don't pay taxes until you start to take money out of your IRA. You can visit and open an account by visiting altoira.com slash chainreaction. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Kelly, one of the co-founders of Delphi Digital. And today we have another really exciting episode of Macro Matters in store for you. Uh, Couldn't be more excited to welcome back Luke Groman to the show. Luke is the founder of Forest for the Trees, an independent macro research firm. Uh, Luke, great to have you back. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. I appreciate it. So we sat down almost eight months ago now, um, which is crazy. It feels like yesterday. So I won't make you run through your entire background again. We'll link to our previous episode in the show notes. Um, but we've got a lot to get a lot to get to put out on Twitter that you were coming on. So we've got some some good questions from uh, from people in the audience uh, that I'm going to try and weave into our conversation. But I guess a good starting point, just setting the stage. You know, when we chatted back in October. Uh, we talked a lot about the outlook for global monetary policy, and the context at the time was the Fed was uh, literally coming off of its third rate cut um, in in three months, right? October 2019. If you fast forward to today, obviously the mm-hmm. backdrop is considerably different, but at the same time, I feel like the outbreak of COVID 19 and then the economic aftermath uh, has almost served as an accelerant for many of the trends that we were actually talking about at the end of last year. So. You know, at a high level, where do you think we stand today and how has the economic impact of all of this either changed your outlook or changed the timeline for some of the major trends that you're watching? Sure. I, I think well, you said the word accelerant in there and describing what happened. And I think that's a really good word to describe it. So when we go back to the fall of 2019, we were talking about what appeared to us was an accelerating U.S. fiscal crisis effectively, where as a result of the combination of rising deficits uh, issued heavily at the short end of the curve and not enough foreign sponsorship in terms of buying treasuries and also banking regulations where you, you had sort of this perfect storm of a squeeze where you had the repo rate crisis uh, or repo rate spike, uh, where repo rates spiked 8 to 10% for a couple of days. And I think that was, I think, a really big kickoff to this, uh, really what 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 is a U.S. fiscal crisis. And driven by too much treasury issuance relative to foreign sponsorship. And so uh, that was the moment where the Fed really went from sort of taking half measures in terms of cutting interest rate, you know, stopping raising rates first, and then cutting interest on excess reserves, and then the three rate cuts you referenced, 
and started actually growing their balance sheet again, which was something we'd been expecting for all of 2019. And we had sort of the melt up through the end of 2019. We came into 2020 and, and in January, the Fed stopped growing its balance sheet. And so that was the one thing that I was I was focused most heavily on as we moved through January and then into February. And it, it left me being a, a, a cautious in the in the short term because I thought ultimately the Fed would keep growing their balance sheet. Uh, the COVID crisis caught me off guard uh, entirely, as as I think it did a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, your word accelerant, I think, is a really good uh, word to describe what the COVID crisis did, which is it is a, a crisis, an economic crisis, and, and a major one in its own way. It's a huge crisis, and what it ultimately did was accelerate this this U.S. fiscal crisis from being an incipient growing fiscal crisis to being a very acute crisis. And so what that means in terms of, uh, as we went through the crisis, you could see it. Equities fell sharply. Uh, They peaked on February 19th. They fell through March 9th. Uh, And on March 9th, I I picked that date because after just 12 days of equity sell-offs, the Treasury market began selling off almost tick for tick with the equity market, which was something we had thought in terms of how we've been looking at this fiscal crisis, this growing fiscal crisis would happen in the next crisis. And so it was frightening, but validating to us that basically what we thought would play out was was starting to play out, that basically in the next sell-off, because equities were such an important part of the uh, uh, economy, in the next recession, you, you, you could see treasury yields start rising as the recession got worse. And that started happening. And that then, I think, forced the Fed's hand to do what they did. And since that point in time, Treasury yields rose as equities sold off from March 9th through March 18th. Fed started getting very aggressive, and we've seen the Fed balance sheet grow by, call it, two, two and a half trillion over the next two, two and a half months, uh, which surprised even me. I knew they'd be aggressive. I didn't think they'd be that aggressive. But as I started to see that aggressiveness, I thought, okay, it's intellectually offensive, but it's probably good for stocks. And that kind of brings us to where we are today. And there's sort of a tactical view and, a, and then a strategic view. The tactical view, you're seeing a lot of things where the Fed is tapering in terms of the amount that they are buying and uh, the pace at which they're growing their balance sheet. Um, you're, you're seeing a high degree of frothiness in equity markets when you're seeing bankrupt companies get bid up three, four, five hundred 500%. <laughs> Uh, on the equity after the after they've already filed, there, there's some strange things going on, and that that gives me a little bit of pause uh, having having done this for a long time. Now, with that said, now that COVID has hit and the economic indices have, have have taken the hit, the data have taken the hit that they have. There's really only one fix on this now. The the the, the old world of of monetary policy, as as the Fed and policymakers like to think of it, is as a dial, right? We can dial it up a few clicks and to make the room warmer. We can dial it down to make it a little cooler. Those days, I think, are largely over now as a result of COVID. And what the Fed is now operating with is, this, is an on-off switch. Mm-hmm. On, we're printing enough. Off, we're not printing enough. On, off. And I, it just feels a little bit like with what the Fed's doing, and we're getting a little close to that switch being flicked into the off position. We're not printing enough. And so I, ultimately, that switch is going to have to be put into the on position and left in the on position as if the U.S. government does not want to slash entitlement spending, if it doesn't want to slash the defense budget, if it doesn't want to default on Treasury. So that's, I would say, probably three, four minutes just on 
where we were when we last talked and, and, and where, where we are sitting today in terms of how we're thinking about the world. Yeah, and I think you put that in a really understanding way, especially the dial and the on-off switch. You know, one of the questions I would have is, if you're sitting in the position of, you know, Jerome Powell or any of the, the Fed officials, when you talk about it becoming a bit more almost binary, right, in terms of printing enough or not, what indicators would you be looking at or do you look at to try and get a gauge of whether or not the, we'll call it stimulus in quotes, is enough to either bring us out of this um, or is enough for the current, I guess, market conditions that are developing? So if I'm that, I'm watching a few a few things, and and all of them are saying that I'm still doing a, a good job or doing enough, right? So it's it's the dollar index, the Dixie. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's falling, I'm printing enough. If it's rising, I'm not. Uh, I would be looking at at cross currency basis uh, swaps again. If those are if, if if FX hedge Treasury yields are getting more negative, I'm not printing enough. If they're getting more positive, which they are, particularly for Japan, for example, then I am printing enough. Uh, I would be watching treasury auctions to see how those are going and and in particular the internals in terms of the bid to cover and and the tails on those auctions and those have generally uh, on net I would say suggest that they're printing enough uh, and then I'd be watching the stock market as well and, and that's obviously telling us that they're printing enough and so you sort of look across those those are sort of the biggies and as you look across all of that they're all saying okay I'm doing enough and and I and it's it's probably uh, informs some of what they're doing in terms of the tapering is is they've been very very gradual right a half it's not as gradual as it sounds the way they're framing it sounds very gradual half a million <laughs> a day but you know the half a million a day is 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 a, is a is, or half a billion excuse me a day uh is a big number in the grand scheme of things but but I think that's what probably what they're trying to do it's how I would do it if I were mm-hmm. them put it that way yeah, and and you mentioned, I mean, frothiness hitting the equity markets. If you look at the global uh, market cap of stocks, for example, have added somewhere north of twenty to twenty-one trillion dollars in terms of a, a market cap since those March bottoms. And again, we have seen, to your point, this this you know unprecedented massive amount of stimulus um, and policy come to come to markets. But do you think at this point stocks have really outpaced the amount of not only you know current stimulus measures but but expected stimulus measures going? forward? And is there too much kind of relying on this V-shaped recovery that, again, the more as time passes, it seems that's becoming, you know, a bit more elusive day by day? Yeah. And, I, you know, the caveat to it, like you just said, is, uh, or, or at least inferred, or, or is what happens in terms of the reopen. If we get a big second wave, then... Right, exactly. Of course. I, I do think it's probably gotten maybe a little bit ahead of itself. You know, if I'm the Fed, I, I probably all else equal want to rein that in a little bit if I can. But it's tricky because again, if, if it's a if it's an on off switch, it's either stocks up or stocks down. There's no sort of happy medium. Um, but I but I do to answer your question, I do think it's probably gotten a little ahead of itself. You know, you've seen a lot of capitulation. You know, you contrast with where we were three months ago in terms of sentiment and positioning with where we are today. It's it's almost 180 degree different on, on both counts. So yeah, I think it probably I think it probably has gotten a little bit a little bit ahead of itself. And you've 
uh, I actually just listened to a recent podcast you hopped on, uh, Macro Voices. I know you're a frequent guest there, a huge fan of that show. Um, and you talked about the stock market uh, effectively being the economy almost right at this point, just given how influential it is, um, how much household wealth is wrapped up in the stock market. And I and I know this is actually came from from Twitter as well. Somebody asked because you have made comments around how U.S. stocks actually play into potentially national security concerns and how. You know, essentially, the U.S. needs both the Treasury market to remain strong as well as the, as the equity market. Can you expand a little bit on those thoughts? Because I think that is a really interesting take. Sure. So where that national security concern comes from, ultimately, is, is we start with equity market cap as a percent of GDP. Is it at or near all-time records over 150% of GDP? Uh, we then factor in, it, it's hard to get a real concrete number on exactly how influential equities are to things like consumption spending and tax receipts and GDP growth, but you can play, you, there's a number of data series that you can use to sort of play b- bigger than a bread box with, right? You get a feel for it. And so, for example, one we've cited, a couple we've cited a lot, uh, net capital gains plus taxable IRA distributions per IRS data is roughly 200% of the annual growth in annual personal consumption expenditures, which PCE is about two-thirds to 70% of the U.S. of US GDP. And so that's not saying people are taking all their money out of uh, capital gains and, and IRAs and immediately buying boats or cars or healthcare, because PCE is a very broad category. But what it is saying is, is mathematically, it's impossible for PCE to grow if stocks are falling in those capital gains and IRA distributions slow or, or reverse. And, and we've seen that in 2008 and other, other times. Uh, another, and, and importantly, that 200% does not include uh, stock options or incentive stock uh, for executives. And because those are all taxes, ordinary income. And so those flow through a different part of the IRS data. That we can, we can again, play bigger than a bread box with by looking at the percentage of tax receipts paid by the top 5% of taxpayers. And so the top 5% of taxpayers pay 60%, 60% of the individual income taxes in this country. It's about 30% of the overall tax receipts. And we know the top 5% are not making their money by and large in hourly wages. They're making it in capital gains, they're making incentive comp, they're making in you know deferred comp for, for hedge fund managers or carry interest, et cetera. And so when you put these two numbers together, what you quickly can come up with is you don't know exactly the scale, but you know it's in a very big, important driver to consumption. You know consumption can't grow if it isn't growing. And if consumption's not growing, GDP is going to have a really hard time growing because that's two-thirds of GDP. So we, we, we set that side aside, and then we look at the debt side. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a country whose total public debt's 120% of GDP um, and growing rapidly, when you've got entitlements that are 500 to 1,000% of GDP, if GDP doesn't grow faster than the uh, interest rate on all of those obligations, you're into a death spiral. And if GDP actually starts to shrink with your debt and, and obligations that high, the death spiral starts spiraling very, very fast. And if you let it go for very long, there will be questions about your solvency, your ability to pay that. And so basically, when you put these this daisy chain of facts together, what you realize is if stocks fall for very long, it's going to knock over a couple dominoes. And those dominoes uh, on a lag, but not a very long lag, given the numbers involved, are going to call into question the U.S. government's ability to make good nominally on the treasury debt, on the entitlements, without help from the Fed. 
And that's why it's, it's, you know, the key caveat is without help from the Fed. And I think that's why we've seen the Fed's balance sheet go from 800 billion in 2008 to $7 trillion today. Um, and where I think it's going to go a lot higher, because at the end of the day, the, the, the whole the whole shooting match doesn't work. And, and I think it like I, I said before, I think it's all fun and games until the Treasury market loses an eye. And if the mm-hmm. Treasury market loses an eye, and when I say loses an eye, if funding costs for, for Treasury start going up in a recession, in a cold new Cold War with China, it's simply unacceptable. It's a matter of national security. And so that's why I say that um, it, it is such a matter of national security. It's not immediately obvious, but when you sort of look at the pieces, um, you can see the causalities uh, sort of build up. And a lot of this is, it sounds almost just like a, a, a giant confidence game, right? When you look at, you mentioned, you know, foreign investors coming into the treasury market. And again, I think it's one of the big differences when people say, you know, okay, now show Japan, right? And there's often comparisons to the size of uh, debt to GDP levels within Japan, but they're much more domestically or internally financed. The U.S. has a large portion of its uh, uh, treasury debt that is financed by foreign uh, holders, right? And so I think you mentioned this actually in, in your intro comment comments about foreign sponsors and the amount of treasury issuance coming to market. And so bringing it back to this confidence game, is that is that essentially what it is with the dollar here? And once you see, it's almost kind of slowly and then all at once, once you see foreign investors and institutions, whether that's central banks um, or even just you know large uh, capital allocators, lose confidence within the government's ability, the U.S. government's ability to pay back this treasury debt, or simply there's a certain debt to GDP level where people just kind of throw their hands in the air and say, okay, this is just unsustainable for whatever reason. Is it is it a slowly then all but once with the dollar going forward, right? Because a large part, as we talked about back in October, and and you know we'll get into today, a large part of what's going on in the macro landscape revolves around the dollar and, and the direction in which it takes from here, and, and we've seen it sell off quite considerably over the last few weeks. Is this you know is it is it a confidence game, and how long do you think the dollar can stay at these levels before you really do start to see um, you, you know this this steady uh, decline down? in terms of the U.S. dollar against, you know, major reserve currencies, other major reserve currencies? You know, I think it's, I mean, it, it is on some level, no question, basically a confidence game. Um, that's that's fiat currencies in total. For me, it's it's when you look at, there. there's multiple forces pushing back and forth, right? So, for example, foreigners hold about $40 trillion of U.S. dollar-denominated assets on a gross basis. They are net short anywhere from 12 to uh, – the BIS numbers say 12 13 $14 trillion in U.S. dollar-denominated debt. Mm-hmm. The dollar then becomes, as it rises, once it gets too high – these foreigners start selling U.S. dollar-denominated assets to drive dollars or to, to get dollars, excuse me, to, to, to pay down the debt. Uh, and that then puts pressure back on the U.S. Uh, because as we just described, if stocks fall, if assets fall, the math doesn't work for the U.S. And so basically, the dollar is sort of the master pivot in that way. And that basically, if the dollar goes up too much, the foreigner starts you know, feeling pressure. They sell off. They begin selling dollar assets. Dollar assets sell off. That puts pressure on the U.S. government, U.S. Treasury, until the Fed cries uncle and comes in with a big balance sheet expansion and sort of puts, you know, tries to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Uh, ultimately, 
I, in terms of preferences for treasuries, there's, I think, a couple different motivating factors. I think you've seen, we've certainly highlighted over the last six years, global central banks have stopped growing their holdings of treasuries on net. When you look at global FX reserves, they've stopped growing. They stopped growing six years ago. You look at the, you can contrast the lack of growth in treasury holdings at the central bank level to the uh, spectacular growth or strong growth, at least, of gold holdings at the mm-hmm. central bank levels. And to me, I think that speaks to a recognition at the very high levels, highest levels of finance that that that, the, the, that sort of the problem I'm describing here, there's no getting out of it, or at least the only getting out of it is, is one that's very positive for gold. And, and so- because they don't have to mark the mar- their books to market, they they're, have political and other considerations. They're not just managing to, to sort of hit a quarterly or a annual return bogey. They've been sort of the first movers. Ultimately, I think a lot of what you're seeing in, in, in the, the, the disappointing foreign treasury buying is a function of too strong a dollar, because uh, when the dollar's too strong, global trade's too soft, global trade's mm-hmm. too soft, foreigners just don't have the money. Uh, oil's too cheap. The you know OPEC's not buying. Um, geopolitically, there's clearly a, a contingent that that this is a, a strong geopolitical statement. China, Russia, etc., saying this is no longer in our interest at all to do this. And and so when you roll all of these things up, uh, combined with an acceleration of treasury issuance due to what was already basically demographics and all of these off-balance sheet entitlements coming on balance sheet. And now the COVID crisis, it's just this really epic mismatch that, that has a number of different reasons for it happening, but ultimately all sort of points to the, in, in, in the same direction. And to your point, there's been a lot of political leaders who have come out outside the U.S. and to, to your exact point, have, have uh, expressed pretty adamantly about what the, the dollar problem is or the, the problem today with the dollar standard, right, for all of the reasons that you mentioned, especially just given the influence that the dollar has, whether it's global trade or, again, you know, if you look at treasuries, um, the fact that the U.S. can take advantage of the dollar being the world reserve currency certainly comes with uh, a bit of a double-edged sword. My question, though, is what is the alternative right now? And if you look out at, at other major you know, reserve currencies, right, if you look at the euro, for example, uh, certainly at, a, at one point in this entire kind of uh, fallout over the last couple of months, I think there was a lot of question around if the euro would even survive long term because you see such fragmented kind of fiscal policies, but a, a united monetary policy. If you look at the yen, for example, I mean, Japan doesn't, doesn't want the, the, the yen to replace the dollar. So in a world in which we're moving away from the dollar, what do we move more towards? And do we have some type of timeline or do you have an expected timeline for a kind of global neutral financial settlement asset that uh, is either fiat based or is a combination of different fiat currencies? How do you kind of see you know, this move away from the dollar playing out? Yeah, I, I think central banks are telling us where it's going, which is you know, most people say, well, if we go away from the dollar we have to go to something entirely different. And I don't think that that's the case. I think central banks are telling us where it's going, which is a more hybrid system, which mm-hmm. is everyone's still going to use a dollar. A dollar may still re- retain its share of transactions and trade, uh, but it's already losing its share of settlement, right? When we look at the central bank level, uh, like I said, last six years, gold holdings at central bank levels are up a bunch and treasury holdings are up very, very little to, to, to down. And so I think where this system is going is, is the U.S. still 
has significant influence over or retains control over the pipes, right? The SWIFT system, et cetera, but that we move towards a neutral settlement asset like gold or, you know, maybe some sort of basket of currencies. But I think even with basket probably has gold or commodities or something in it. But ultimately, that price of gold, and I'll just say gold rather than having to repeat the, the neutral settlement asset over and over, that price of gold in order to do its job would have to rise enormously uh, uh, to be big enough to be the settlement asset. And so I think that's where this is all going, which is U.S. retains control over the pipes and SWIFT and, and dollar usage probably doesn't move around that much just out of convenience. But it's that dollar storage side that has already changed. It is, we're six years into it, if not you know, 10 years, 20 years into that, that change in dollar storage and settlement. And it'll be effectively a uh, gold settlement uh, where you'll be much more uh, countries will trade with each other in whatever currency they want. And the, the currencies will, you, you can sort of net out trade with each other. And then anyone with a net surplus or imbalance can settle it in gold at a floating price in each of the five major currencies. And I think that's where it's going. And I, and importantly, I think it's it's something that the U.S. government, in particular, the U.S. Department of Defense and and, and sort of the quote unquote deep state or, or Washington bipartisan now, right? Of they're realizing. I think one of the things they've learned from the COVID crisis was we had a crisis and we needed masks and we needed PPE, and they had to. They were at China's beck and call, mm-hmm. and that's not something Washington likes. It's certainly not something the Pentagon likes, and. It's something the Pentagon's been writing about for almost a decade now, talking about for almost a decade. They wrote about it again at the end of 2018. But to be to oversimplify, as Admiral Michael Mullen said in 2011, we're borrowing money from China to build weapons to face down China. This isn't sustainable. And we're using Chinese components, um, as, as noted in the 2018 uh, Pentagon report, uh, that sort of, sort of looked at the same things in terms of supply chain. So to me, I think it's really important that this isn't just Russia and China that want this system shifted towards a neutral settlement asset. I think the Pentagon understands and, and certain interests in Washington understand that if we're going to have a great power competition, as, as the White House just called it about uh, uh, three weeks ago with China, like we once had with the Soviets, there's a reason why a quorum of U.S. manufacturing wasn't in, in the Soviet Union. You know, There's a reason right. why we weren't sourcing our raw materials, our, our rare earth metals of the time. From the Soviet Union, and and the answer is we would have lost. And so I, but you can't bring all this stuff back. You can't move it unless you're a neutral settlement asset. I mean, people forget that for most of the Cold War, the, we had a neutral settlement asset system. Uh, it was it had its own flaws, and and we can talk about that. The biggest being that it, gold wasn't floating in price. But I think ultimately that's where this is going. To answer your question, which is. The U.S. retains control of the pipes. Dollar still used a lot. We all still have dollars. Dollar falls or maybe even collapses against gold as gold basically resumes its role as the reserve asset par excellence. Yeah, and and shifting back to treasuries, I think this plays in as well. The, the gold argument is part of the reason why the demand for treasuries has been so high, just because there is a kind of global shortage of safe assets that. Again, either foreign institutions or uh, global investors can actually park their money in, and that gold, for example, is you know certainly a, a potential solution to this entire problem. But uh, to your point, the market value or size of the gold market today can't necessarily support the size of the potential global inflows. That's exactly right. That's and and Ken Rogoff, uh, who's very you know he's he's 
I would consider him an insider. He wrote a great piece in 2016, right around this time of year, saying emerging markets should go for the gold. And Mm -hmm. he just said that if emerging markets put 10% of the reserves into gold or more, um, it would significantly reduce the the global risk-free asset shortage because gold has no limit on its price. And (laughs) it's all right there. Um, And I think, quite frankly, when you look at why so much of the establishment so much of the establishment doesn't like gold, I think that's exactly why, right? If, if your power comes from your ability to issue these treasuries, um, then anything that competes with that, you are not going to like. And, and a, a good, big enough gold price would, or gold at a big enough price would be a competitor. Like I said before, the difference now is this old system is hurting those same interests. Their ability to compete with China is being hurt by this system. And so I think they're really leading, you know, or at least they're on board with this move away from the post Bretton Woods system where, uh, you know, the U.S.'s chief role in the world is to export treasuries and, and enforce trade lanes. Right. And so if you're U.S., you know, policymakers and you, you to your point, so you see the writing on the wall, obviously it's not going to happen overnight in the short to intermediate term. Does that almost give you a, a, a bigger argument to have, you know, this massive amount of treasury issuance in order to essentially fund getting the U S economy back on track, or at least trying to get it back to, you know, we'll call it pre COVID levels, because it's almost like you're taking advantage of this, this valuable resource of being able to issue treasuries with the U S dollar being so important for a potentially limited time, if that makes sense. So, so in the short term, why not go kind of full pedal to the metal in terms of debt monetization if you see the writing on the wall of you know uh, the rest of the world moving more towards this hybrid system that you outlined? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a great point. And I think really it's interesting, right? Because if, I have a hard time ascribing this level of Machiavellianism to, to this administration. And um, it's not political, it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but boy, if, if you would have come to me in, in early 2017 and said, Luke, I want you to transition us from the dollar system as structured post-1971 to something new with where the dollar is still really important, but that where we can really compete better. Um, and I want you to do it over the next four years. They've checked a lot of the boxes that I would have done. And, and one of those boxes would be in response to a crisis, just go full MMT. Just just spend the money, run it up, force the Fed to buy it, basically sort of combine Fed and Treasury and sort of take off all of the all of the pretenses that the Treasury and Fed are separate and just spend what you need to spend on. And if the world wakes up and gets it overnight, great. That's where you want to be anyway. If it takes a while, great, the world's absorbing overvalued paper and you're getting what you want. It's a win-win for the U.S. either way, really. And so it's an interesting way to pose the question. So I, I, I do, I, I sort of agree with, with how you frame that. I think it's a really interesting point that you bring up to this, this potential win-win scenario, because I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it from that perspective, right? There's just a lot of headlines around the amount of massive stimulus coming and debt monetization and the long-term effects of this. But I think it is important, as we've talked about before, the timing of these things isn't all usually isn't all of a sudden, you know, the rest of the world wakes up one day and says, Hey, what's going on here is not sustainable. And we're going to sell out of dollar assets. We're going to sell uh, or short the dollar, you know, relative to either our local currencies or other major currencies, right? It takes time for these things to play out. Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, I would say that 
one of, one of the things U.S. policymakers are maddest about China about, which if, you re- if you've read over the last several years, they've repeatedly, U.S. policymakers have repeatedly said China's violating the rules-based global order. They're changing the rules-based global order. Well, the rules-based global order, you know, I'm going to set aside some of the human rights stuff, which are, are very serious and, and, mm-hmm. and what have you. But of course, no one cared about that when, when you know, when, when China was playing by the financial side of the rules-based global order, which was, we'll give you the factories and you make the stuff, you send it back to us, we'll pay you dollars, you recycle the dollars back into our treasury market and our financial markets more broadly. And then that bids those up and that creates demand and we'll buy more stuff from you. And it's this virtuous cycle. And in the aftermath of 08, one of the things that is completely glossed over almost by everybody that talks about it is the most most U.S. centric versions of what happened in 08 is Ben Bernanke and the Fed are a hero. They saved us all. They printed the money and everything's hunky dory. And we very rarely in the U.S. hear the Chinese side of the story and the rest of the world side of the story. And if you read Chinese media, if you translate it, and I, I don't speak Mandarin, but if you you know I have a good friend of mine who does, he says, listen, just use Google Translate. It's it's good enough for government work for doing the picture. <laughs> and when you read the Chinese media version of the 2008 story and the Chinese central bank English versions of the, of the 2008 story. It's, Oh my God, I can't believe the Americans printed all that money. And wow, that's not the deal. What uh, of what a reserve currency is. It's supposed to be managed for everybody, not just for the Americans. And you can see that it's a very short pathway to the rest of the world going, that was, they just printed 3 trillion. They owe a hundred trillion to their baby boomers. There's no chance they're not going to print it. They're they, okay. We have to start doing something differently. And so, in the aftermath of 08, all we hear about is the policy success uh, of the U.S. But the U.S. sort of violated the rules-based global order mm-hmm. of what the dollar was. It, it is, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have done it. We probably needed to, but but every action has a reaction. And the reaction was China said, okay, we're going to instead of taking these dollars that we get from you and and putting them all into treasuries, we're going to start going around the world and just buying up something that's more finite than what your treasury and what your dollars are mathematically going to have to, to, to become if you were going to pay out uh, pay out your, your, your baby boomers at par on all these entitlements. And so from 2008, 2009, you started seeing China buying up massive quantities of oil fields or future oil supplies, commodities, copper, rare earths. I mean, you look at what they own in Africa, uh, what they own in South America, they start making dollar-based loans to uh, uh, other countries around the world. They're now the biggest creditor of the world in dollars. And you can see that that was, in my view, in U.S. policymakers' eyes, the, the, the rules, the financial rules-based global order violation, because if China's not putting those dollars back to the U.S., you know, as, as a Chinese, one of the Chinese generals that wrote uh, a couple influential uh, pieces in China, a hardliner, said that those that interrupt the capital flow back to the United States are enemies of the United States. And what China started doing was interrupting the capital flow back to the U.S., basically starting to try to use the dollars to more monopolize more of the world's commodities for China's interests. It was purely out of economic interest as a, as, as a reaction to what the U.S. did in 08. But I think ultimately, when you see that breakdown, what that ultimately does is it forces more of the U.S.'s financing needs onto the global private sector, and in particular, the U.S., and that's sort of how we've gotten to where we've gotten with the Fed's balance sheet over the last couple of years, you know, rising again the way it has, because the U.S. private sector balance sheet doesn't have the balance sheet to buy all this issuance. We can't finance all these entitlements ourselves. We need help from the Fed. 
Hey guys, I wanted to tell you how easy it is to open and fund an Alto Crypto IRA. All you have to do is open a traditional Roth or SEP Crypto IRA account, then get ready to invest. An Alto Crypto IRA is specifically designed for crypto investments. You custody with Coinbase, trading's tax-free, investment minimums are as low as $10, and gains grow tax-deferred, meaning you don't pay taxes until you start to take money out of your IRA. You can visit and open an account by visiting altoira.com slash chainreaction. Right. So basically, at the end of the day, all this this flood of treasury issuance that's coming to market, there's that has to go somewhere, right? Somebody has to buy that. And if you remove the foreign aspect of the foreign holders, and by remove, I mean just significantly diminish. And you also, to your point, don't have the private sector that's able to support the buying of these assets. That pretty much leaves the Fed as, you know, an increasing amount of that falling on the sh- on the Fed's shoulders to to keep the the bid under treasuries high, which keeps you know yields and, and financial conditions relatively accommodative. That's exactly right, and, I, and it ties back to that point I made earlier of why we've gone from a dial of monetary policy to a, a lever. Because when the Fed's buying enough treasuries to keep monetary conditions loose, it's it's risk on, and when they're not, the U.S. government is crowding out. Uh, the rest of the world and crowding out its own financial markets and its risk off. And so it really comes down to that ties back to why it's, is the Fed printing enough or is the Fed not printing enough? And I know you've probably gotten this countless times um, since you and, and Brent Johnson have gone back and forth about, you know, the whole dollar, global dollar shortage, dollar milkshake theory won't, you know, rehash that. But in the short to medium term, do you think, you know, taking what we've seen the last few weeks, for example, do you think that is the start of this broader kind of structural weakness within the dollar? Or do you or do you think with this global dollar shortage and the potential fallout in, let's say, emerging and developing economies as they try and basically follow, you know, at least in part the Fed's playbook or major central bank playbooks without having and issuing reserve currencies. Do you think the dollar is set up for almost a, a final dance, so to speak? You know, it has one last big leg higher, you know, in it that ends up ironically being the kind of uh, downfall of King dollar because it gets too strong. Or do you think we're actually starting to see um, the dollar, the structural dollar weakness play out in front of our eyes, you know, right now? It's a great question. You know, the short answer is I don't know. What I would tell you is if you would have told me a month ago, two months ago, month ago, that the Fed's going to be tapering dramatically uh, the amount that they're growing their balance sheet by and that the U.S. Treasury General Account or TGA is going to go from 400, 500 billion to 1.45 trillion over a month, month and a half, what have you, two months. Historically, TGA is correlated very well with the dollar. Uh, we've shown work to show that the TGA being at 1.45 trillion should be a Dixie at about 120. I would have told you, boy, uh, the dollar is going to scream higher between the tapering and the TGA uh, liquidity withdrawal. And instead, we've seen the dollar, like you said, it's just sort of bled very, very, you know, steadily from. 99 to, to today, it's barely holding on to 96 last I checked. And I don't fully know where that liquidity is coming from. Um, I suspect it might be the expectation on some level that, 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 that the TGA is about to be reversed, which would be very dollar bearish, especially given the amounts involved. I think it could also be partly what's going on domestically as a result of this policy change that the Fed implemented in April, uh, where they change supplementary uh, liquidity ratios or SLRs as it relates to treasuries for the U.S. banks. So basically, historically, uh, treasuries under 
think it's Dodd Frank, uh, accounted for basically part of the capital ratio. Mm-hmm. And as of April first, they no longer did uh, temporarily for a, for the next year, which they my guess is they'll just roll and roll and roll and roll forever, uh, or as long as they need at least. The importance of of, of disallowing treasuries or removing treasuries from the capital charge, basically banks can buy treasuries with almost unlimited leverage. And so, you know, to me, it seems very possible that the Fed is doing a bit of a sleight of hand here where, yeah, we're tapering, but we, after changing this rule, the banks can take on whatever they need with no capital hit. And as long as interest rates are nominally positive, it is additive on some level to the banks what that change did was go from the banking system can finance the government or the private sector to the banks can finance the government and the private sector. And that shift from or to and is a really big deal. And I, I suspect that might have something to do with it. But to answer your question or to, to your question of is, do we get one more last hurrah or is this it? It, it really comes down to the Fed. To me, People say, well, the Fed, you know, Brent will say to me, well, the Fed can't do enough. I said, well, dollars gone from 102 to 96 on $2 trillion. They, they, they right. can do enough. To me, um, the question is, what's the Treasury market doing? And, and that then ties into some of the other things we're doing. Because whatever it takes to keep the Treasury market functioning properly is what, is they're, is what they're going to do. So, and that's also part of the reason you mentioned kind of shifting or this this idea of sleight of hand, right? And is that one of the reasons why you also saw the Fed open up or extend um, uh, uh, repo agreements to more foreign central banks as well? Essentially, saying you don't need to sell, trying to uh, essentially disincentivize them from selling treasuries because of all these things that we're talking about here. I think that's exactly what they did. It's it's. You know, I think it's important to look at the situation as almost, you know, back in the US, USSR and USA Cold War, there was the, the term mutually assured destruction, right, or, or MAD. And the same thing's going on here around the dollar, which is because these foreigners own $40 trillion in dollar denominated assets on a gross basis and they're short dollars, anytime the dollar gets, and, and because the US economy doesn't function if stocks don't keep rising sort of ad infinitum, then Anytime the dollar gets too strong, you basically, foreigners have a gun to the head of U.S. markets, which has a gun to the head of the U.S. Treasury market, which has a gun to the head of the U.S. government. And if one of them pull the trigger, they sort of all pull the trigger <laughs> and, and you get a march like we saw where sort of everything breaks, including the Treasury market. And then the Fed comes in and goes, oh, let's have a do over. And, and the dollar is the release valve. And so to say that you can't have one last hurrah is to say that you're never going to have that happen again. And I don't think that that's, I think you could have that happen, but I, markets are forward looking and reflexive. And I think when you look at what the Fed did and what the Fed has communicated since, you know, there's an element of what they did with the swap lines and everything else. This was not purely offensive of look at our power. Part of it was, you know, if we pull this trigger on the dollar, we know when like half a millisecond later, we're going to get a bullet in our own temple. And we don't want that to happen. And that's really, I think, uh, the way to think about what they did with repos is, yeah, like you said, they, they wanted to get the treasury market function again because you can't have a dysfunction in, in, in the quote unquote deepest, most liquid market in the world. Right. And part of it's just, again, that confidence game, that public perception of the more the more the Fed can accomplish its goals or keep the demand for tre- the treasury market high, for example, without having to actually be the the, la- the buyer of last resort or the, the face of you know that demand, 
they're they're willing to do. Yeah, that's right, and it's and it's increasingly mutually exclusive uh, um, uh, uh, needs, right? Or, or as I put it, trying to ride two horses with one ass, which is they need that demand for treasuries to be good enough, and they would love to not be involved at all. But because foreigners can't uh, 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 or won't buy enough, given the size of issuance, and because the domestic private balance sheet doesn't have the capacity. Um, without selling stocks, but if they sell stocks to buy treasuries, then issuance rises instead of falls. So you're into this, this, this no-win situation for the Fed, where, again, it's this on-off, on-off. Are they buying enough? Are they not buying enough? Yeah, and I've, I've often joked uh, that I think Jerome Powell has, has one of the worst you know, white-collar jobs in America, just because, again, if you think about waking up and being him every day, I mean, it's, it's your point, it's a lose-lose, right? You're stuck between a rock and a hard place constantly. And the reason I love having these conversations too is because, you know, it's, it's easy to try and say, okay, this is definitely what's going to happen. But I think the more and more, especially in the times that we're in, more and more people are not throwing their hands up and saying, listen, here's how things could play out. But to be quite frank, I'm not entirely sure what the timeline is for it or how it will, because there are just so many different moving parts to this, right? We've talked a lot about the Fed, obviously, but part of the dollar and potential treasury demand and all the other things we're talking about also relies on you know, what other global central banks outside the Fed do as well, right? If you're looking at right. the EPA, the BOJ, I mean, both of which have announced you know, uh, second waves of or tsunamis of this uh, stimulus, these stimulus programs and policy decisions, a lot of it, you know, depends on what they're doing as well and how much um, uh, money printing, I guess you'd say, is going on abroad. That's exactly right. And I think ultimately, you know, uh, Kirill Sokolov said, you know, that's why gold is so easy. Right. And it benefits from from all of it. it, Yeah. I I, and I've increasingly shifted around to his his point of view where, look, we know how this movie is going to end or we we have a pretty high degree of confidence how this movie is going to end because we saw it in March. If they just let things collapse and the dollar super spike. Boy, that that's a huge problem for the treasury market, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just not going to be allowed to happen. You don't want to be the guy at the Fed who's got to call the Marine Corps and say, listen, you can't buy all that stuff this week because the treasury market's not working. And so um, or you don't want to be the guy saying, yeah, we need to cut off entitlements to you know 70 million baby boomers. So, right. You know, the money's going to get printed. There's not a fiat. As far as I'm aware, there is not a, a sovereign in history with a fiat currency that has shrunk its government for lack of printed money. But like you said, it it is a bit of a race and others are doing the same thing. There are some that can't afford that dollar weakness. There are others that can. I think, you know, the Japanese probably can't afford that dollar weakness uh, more than than others, maybe the Europeans. But don't forget, you know, the the dollar short that everyone's talking about in terms of dollar denominated debt is a two-edged sword. And, And so, Every tick down of the dollar, that debt gets more payable. That's a, that's a short. Mm-hmm. That twelve to fourteen trillion dollars in dollar denominated debt. It, it, it's like taking out a mortgage in Mexican pesos and having the Mexican peso collapse. You wake up the next month and you've got a bunch more disposable income that's domestically stimulative to your economy. And we saw that happen in twenty seventeen when the dollar fell. So I hear people when they say, "Well, all others will print enough and faster to prevent the dollar from rising." I don't know that all will because if I'm mm-hmm. short a bunch of dollars. Great. I borrowed a bunch of money in dollars. Now the dollar's collapsing. My domestic economy is going to get better. 
Right. And so, so it seems like a, it's a matter of almost timing of this, right. Or what comes first. And, and I agree. I think we see the writing on the wall in terms of what the longer term end game is of this, whether or not we get that, or that's accelerated because the dollar surges higher and has this one kind of last hurrah, which, which really breaks the system down. Or if we just, you know, see this steady decline or this, this move or erosion in, in dollar value in, in under that circumstance, right. Let's say the, we're looking out longer term, how are you from a you know portfolio allocation, you know, asset management perspective right now? What do, what is the ideal portfolio, right? What types of assets are you looking to hold? If you do see, let's say, you know, the Dixie, the DXY move closer to 85, 80, you know, potentially even lower, what type of you know assets would you want to be in um, and would you want to hold in that environment? So for me, I, I want to own, I, I think it's a time for a portfolio that benefits from fiat currency debasement. I think that's the, the number one thing we have to think about in terms of, okay, we have the first global sovereign debt bubble in 100 years, it's bursting. And as a result of COVID, it's bursting really fast, which means either global sovereign bonds are not money good nominally, or they're not money good on a real basis. Those, those are the choices after COVID, and particularly given the economic fallout. So what we, we use that as our starting point, you know, then I think you go, okay, I want to own gold. I want to own gold miners. That's, that's, that's going to be a, a good size of my portfolio. And it's interesting, right? Is, is, is I have a good friend of mine who talks to a lot of different people and, you know, as, as do I, and you say, do you like gold? Yeah, I like gold. Okay. How much gold do you own? And this is even individuals, so individuals, institutions, how much gold do you own? Uh, 3%. Well, it's 2% of the portfolio. It's, it's, right. it's, 4% of portfolio. Nobody's saying they own more than 5% of their portfolio in gold. And for the first global sovereign debt bubble bursting in 100 years, I think that number's got to probably be 10 or 15%, uh, maybe 20, 20. I mean, the richest guy in, in history, Jacob Fugger, he said put 25% in gold, 25% in bonds, 25% in stocks, 25% in real estate. And that's that's probably about right for what we're going through, you know. And when I say gold, I think I think Bitcoin has a place there as well. And so if it's you know, you knew eventually we were going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's you know, if you want it, ten percent gold, ten percent bit Bitcoin, or you know, twenty percent Bitcoin, five percent. However, you per- I think you want a really big, um, non-correlated, neutral reserve asset that is nobody else's liability. Yeah. This thing goes really wrong. Pretty much everything else on your book is going to go to close to zero or get marked down enormously, and so people just aren't sort of prepared for that because it's been. If that happens, uh, either way, either the nominal loss or the real the loss, the real loss that 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 these neutral reserve assets, if you will, gold and Bitcoin and, and gold miners would 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 benefit from. I think then you go okay. I think equities. Um, you know, for me, I don't like the 25% bonds. I'm, I'm much lower than that personally, but I'm also a younger guy. I, I don't need the current income. And so there's some competing uh, things there that everyone has to make decide for themselves. And then real estate, I think, I think you're going to want to be careful with real estate in terms of where you put it, where, you know, right now we've seen res- or, uh, uh, retail real estate suffer as a result of Amazon. Uh, but now with this COVID crisis, the You've got to take a real hard look at commercial real estate, uh, you know, utilization rates and rents and et cetera. And, you know, that can all be adjusted for by, by what you pay for it. But um, that, that is, I think it gets a little trickier on the real estate side. But ultimately, uh, the key to me is the next 10 years, next five years, I think it'll be all about fiat currency debasement. 
Absolutely. And what I appreciate about that take too is it's not going out and saying again, sell all of your fiat denominated assets, whether it's US based assets, euro assets. You know, you can hold a portfolio of gold, you know, maybe a small allocation of Bitcoin, maybe even broadening out to precious metals or, or broader crypto assets, and then real estate and stocks, because those could actually benefit from a currency devaluation type scenario, right? It's not just saying put all your eggs in the, I'll call it the gold basket. No, that's right. I mean, it's an oversimplified way to think about it is, is since two, since the second quarter of 2008, I was just looking at this today, since the second quarter of 2008 uh, to today, second quarter of 2020, so 12 years, U.S. Treasury issuance has grown at an 8.3% compound annual growth rate. And the Treasury coupon, zero to two, you know, you, you, it's not a good way to preserve or grow your wealth by putting your money in a bond that grows, that whose issuance grows 8%, whose coupon pays you zero to two. And that's how you go from eating filet mignon to eating dog food over time. And so that's, um, like I said, it's an oversimplified way to think about it, but I, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a good way to think about it in terms of just what, you know, how you want to allocate, uh, given what's likely has to happen to, to sort of make the math work for, for the U.S. government, for governments around the world. Right. And and not to put you on the spot here, but curious to your take, would you say, and this is a very simple, simplified version of this question, but when you look at just kind of the, the risk across different asset classes, would you say at this point, treasuries or even just you know global sovereign bonds carry more potential risk uh, in a portfolio sense than even you know US equities or global equities do? I do. Uh, on a real basis, I, I do. Absolutely. I think you, you just look at the fiscal side and you you, it, it comes down to really a, a, a straightforward question, which is, do you think the United States government and other governments will nominally default or restructure entitlements, cut defense spending, or U.S. Treasury spending? And Because those three are 110% plus of U.S. tax receipts. Those are the only things that matter that they can cut. Everything else the government spends on is gravy on top of that. And if the answer to that question is no, then, then treasury bonds have significant, have significant real risk uh, relative to equities. And that's why I, I talk about a lot on Twitter, this S&P over TLT, right? The, the S&P 500 over the long bond ETF. Uh, look, from 2008 to 2018, it rose 5X. You, you got killed owning now, treasury. You did fine owning treasuries nominally, but boy, the opportunity cost relative to just holding stocks was enormous. And Given tying back to what we initially talked about or earlier talked about of, of how important stocks are to making TLT money good, it's this sort of you know self-referential calculus that to me, I just I think you know high quality equities that are paying a lot of them paying dividends above the treasury rate are much, much less risky on a, on a real rate on a real basis than treasuries are. I think that's a, that's a really interesting take for sure. And again, it's it's a conversation that um I don't think a ton of people are having right now. As we shift away from, you know, we'll say global sovereigns, and now you've got obviously uh, a, a whole wash of, of global capital that's now trying to find a new, I'll call it safe haven, right? Right now, today, it's it's tough to call, you know, Bitcoin a safe haven, so to speak, right? There's still a lot of volatility. It's built on a nascent technology. It's, it has a relatively you know, short track record compared to you know, the thousands of years that gold's been used. 
when you think about Bitcoin, right, and this is this is not to get into the technical weeds of what Bitcoin is, when you think about what it can represent from a more kind of macro perspective and this maybe high baited version of, of digital gold longer term, you know, how are you thinking about Bitcoin relative to gold? Are you bullish on Bitcoin? Are there any interesting conversations you've had with even your clients recently asking about what the potential you know upside with Bitcoin is and how do you uh, manage that type of positioning, right? Whether it's a, a, a one to three percent allocation, but you have a much higher position in gold. How are you kind of thinking about just that whole, you know, asset allocation mix with you know Bitcoin potentially thrown in? Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, I, I own probably a two to three percent position in Bitcoin. And oh, nice. Okay, I, I, didn't, I actually didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I, and it's been there for it's been there for a while. It kind of up and down a little bit. I, I think of it as a as a digital gold, right? A digital mm-hmm. gold for you know, it's not in a disparaging way, but for for millennials, there's there's been studies yeah. showing they, they they vastly prefer that. I think there's real power in how easy it is to buy uh, Bitcoin. When you look at you get on your phone, Coinbase, uh, etc. I think that's uh, a powerful catalyst. Uh, the thing I don't like that's developed around Bitcoin has been the futures market. Um, mm. You know, I was I had some tweets about that at the end of 2017 after having watched what and really dug into the gold market in, in, in way more detail than I than I have on, on Bitcoin. But just understanding that if I wanted to temper the price of Bitcoin, the first thing I would do would be to launch a futures market, basically a cash subtle futures market, because it it begins to shift price discovery from physical fund supply demand fundamentals towards more who has the biggest balance sheet and we we all know who the who, the, who has the biggest balance sheet right it it, it basically it, it it shifts the game into you know who has the best hand in poker to taking you to, to a, a a no limits game with a bunch of billionaires and mm. you, know, you might have a royal flush but if they're going to take your your house and your car and your wife and your kids you're, you're it gonna, won't matter doesn't matter and you've seen that in gold and it's now, over time, it, it doesn't change the overall trajectory, but it, it, it makes it, it, it can make it more volatile. It can make it more frustrating. It, it defers demand from people that might have gone out and, and sourced the actual Bitcoin, and now they just hold the futures. And, and, and that's without getting into all the you know, differences in mm-hmm. futures, how they may be structured relative to gold. And, and, and Bitcoin doesn't, as far as I know, have the big unallocated market like gold has in London. So that it's not apples to apples. But the long, for me, I would be, I think, even more excited if I saw that market either sort of withering on the vine or, or, or what have you. But I ultimately think, you know, when you say interesting stories, it was interesting to me to see um, institutional clients starting to talk about it. I would say in the last 12 to 18 months, people thinking about it, uh, people owning it personally. And, and I think as far as I've seen, most of the institutional people I've talked to are sort of looking at it as a digital gold, you know, that nobody's credit, you know, nobody else's risk. And, and mm-hmm. it's based on something. It's based on the energy cost of, of mining it, right? Of, which is exactly what gold is too, that, that, that basically it's a, it's, a, it's a measure of stored energy and energy's work. And, and it's, it's, simply, it's, it's a much more fair money when you, when you think about it. And so, I, I like it. Uh, I, I like it. Like I said, I, I own some. I, I, I have not had the time to sort of dig in uh, as deep on it as I have on gold. The other thing that, that has holds me up a little bit is when I look at when we think about that neutral reserve asset, central banks own gold. They don't own Bitcoin. 
And so to the extent that we wake up and there's sort of a, a shift either over time or a big bang of, hey, there's a new neutral settlement asset we're going to use a lot more of and we're going to make it bigger. To me, it seems more likely that gold is it than Bitcoin, at least mm -hmm. for now. Not to say that Bitcoin wouldn't benefit if we woke up and some central bank had bid gold to $2,000, $3,000, $5,000, or $10,000. I think, I think Bitcoin does great. Uh, but that's, that's also how I've thought about it. And do you, I think those are all really, really good points, by the way, especially from a institutional, more kind of sophisticated investor standpoint, so that last point about, you know, gold and, and central banks. And again, if you're going to think about Bitcoin as potentially, this is long-term, but potentially being a, you know, global digital alternative reserve asset of sorts, is there anything mandate wise with the Fed or other central banks, aside from the fact that it's just Bitcoin as a small market, and it wouldn't be able to obviously take the uh, a potential buying power that you know, central banks have within the gold market, is there anything that mandates them away from actually holding Bitcoin? Or is it more so just a matter of this market becoming more mature, becoming more liquid, the market value of Bitcoin growing to a certain point where um, they can actually use Bitcoin, I guess you'd say, as a, as a reserve assets purpose in terms of being able to sell out of it and have you know, that relatively seamless liquidity. Is there anything that's stopping them aside from the fact that Bitcoin is just not um, large enough? That I don't know. Uh, obviously, you're right. That's not large enough. Uh, I don't know the, the the Federal Reserve Charter well enough to know if it how they would even define Bitcoin as to whether they could buy it or not. Um, right. And I think, but I but I think they would not want to transfer neutral reserve asset status to something they didn't hold a lot of themselves already. I do think that that basically now you're just giving it to the market as opposed to them having so. so you know, to the extent that, you know, if we, if, if that logic, using that logic, if we see them buying it, if they could, then you start to say, okay, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's something that they would move to. Obviously they've talked a lot about central bank digital currencies. The Chinese mm -hmm. are pioneering something now or, or testing something now. Um, but uh, I just don't know if, if there's anything precluding them from doing so. Yeah. No, I think those are, those are all really good points. And it's just something I've been thinking about recently and I figured I'd bounce it off you because I, I don't know the answer to it either, but excited to see how this all plays out. Um, Luke, listen, this has been a really good conversation. Always love catching up with you. Uh, where can people find more of your work? I know you're, you're active on Twitter. Where can people find more about you? Sure. So I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. And then uh, for more information about our research product offerings, institutional retail, you can check us out at fftt-llc.com. Fantastic. And we will link to all of that in the show notes for people who are interested. I highly recommend following Luke, uh, one of my favorite people to talk to and catch up about macro markets, gold, Bitcoin, all things. So excited to do this again, hopefully in the coming months as things uh, really start to progress. But thanks again for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. It was a blast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.